0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by Datadogs Club, which is a community of people who love data. We have weekly events, and today is one of such events. If you want to find out more about the events we have, there is a link in the description. Go there, check it out. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. This way you will not miss the future themes like the one we have today. And we have a Slack community where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. This week we'll talk about being a research scientist at Amazon and transitioning from being a research scientist to doing freelancing and consulting. And we have a special guest today, Verena. Verena has strong expertise in NLP and machine learning with more than seven years of experience. Her background is in statistics and she recently quit her job as a research scientist at Amazon to work as a freelancer. And today we will talk about that. So welcome to our interview.
1: Thanks, Alexey. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks. So the questions for today's interview are prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks, Johanna, for your help. And yeah, that's us. So before we go into our main topic of being a resource scientist and transitioning to freelance, freelancer in machine learning, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far?
1: Sure. (laughs) It was really pretty much like a step by step thing. So I originally studied economics because I always liked learning languages but I didn't kind of see a career path if I just studied a language so I decided to do an economics study in combination with Chinese studies so yeah I also spent some time in China which was pretty interesting and after some time I kind of found out that I didn't really like economics that much I found it was a bit yeah arbitrary in the sense that you have some assumptions in one model but then you arrive at a result, but if you change the assumptions, then you arrive at a different result. And I think in economics, it's kind of hard to verify your assumptions, and I found that more straightforward in statistics. So basically in the economics uh, bachelor, you also have a lot of statistics and there was a possibility to focus on statistics more, which I then did. Econometrics, right? Yeah, econometrics, time series, all this kind of thing. And then also did my, um, thesis in statistics and went on to did the master in, in statistics. Yeah. And, and back at the time, I mean, data science was not that much of a hype yet. So I was really doing a lot of classical statistics, but I did have some machine learning and data science courses during my master. And really liked that a lot better than the traditional statistics.
0: Did you study in Berlin?
1: I did the master in Berlin. Yeah. University? There's this joint statistics program from the Free University, Humboldt University and the Technical University. They have this joint master program. I basically discovered data science and machine learning during that program and decided, okay, this is what I want to work on. And yeah, I was trying to find a job in Berlin in data science after finishing the master. But in 2017, there was almost no data science positions in Berlin. Like also Zalando at the time was not hiring data scientists in Berlin, only in Dublin, but I didn't want to go to Dublin. So then I uh, decided to go to Deloitte, uh, which is a consulting company. They were just building up this Deloitte Analytics Institute, which had a focus on engineering and data science. So basically started out there as a consultant and Stayed there for about two years, uh, which was quite interesting because you could basically look into different industries, but I also had the chance to work with very different machine learning use cases. So worked on image recognition, NLP, but also time series, anomaly detection. So very broad range of things, but it was usually more on a proof of concept level. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper into the topics and then decided to to move on from Deloitte, then moved on to Utka Digital briefly, um, which was like an in-house consultancy for the Utka group, did some forecasting and time series there, but then felt like, okay, I actually want to work with bigger data sets and really do machine learning. So that is why I then moved on to Mobility, which at that time was still part of eBay and is a platform where you can buy or sell cars. And, yeah, they then definitely had more data <laughs> and was working on cost or inference there, so we were looking into whether certain purchases were made because of the customer received advertisement before or a certain marketing campaign and then, yeah, I actually moved on to Amazon's because I um, had the chance to join the Amazon Alexa team in Berlin, and since my passion actually already always has been in natural language processing and working with language again. This was like the perfect opportunity to combine this.
2: And then after Amazon?
1: After Amazon. (laughs) So yeah, now I'm working as a freelance uh, generative AI consultant in enabling small and medium businesses to prepare for the gen AI revolution that we're going to witness
0: in the next years. Okay. I have a lot of questions about that. But first, I was curious to learn more about your transition from a data scientist to a research scientist. Because mm-hmm. I remember, so when I w- was working as a data scientist, I kind of missed doing a bit of research. So I was like, usually you work on these uh, industry problems, but like you just take XGBoost, you apply it or I don't know, logistic regression, apply it and then roll it out to production. And then you spend most of the time like either preparing the data or deploying the model. And like this machine learning part was only like, I don't know, one day of work and the rest like the entire like six months is some other work. And I was kind of missing like, um, you know, the research part, the, the algorithmic part. And I once tried to apply to research scientist position. I think it was back then. At, uh, it was at Zelanda. And they told me something like, hey, like, you don't have a PhD, like maybe get first, get a PhD first and then we'll talk. But you don't seem to have a PhD. Like, how did you actually convince Amazon to hire you without a PhD?
1: Yeah, actually, I think it's changing a bit. I mean, of course, there are still a lot of um, research roles where you have to have a PhD, but then it also depends on the company. And Amazon in general, is a company that isn't like, doesn't have pure research roles like DeepMind or Google Brain Mm -hmm. or something. So it's always a bit more with focus on customer problems and application and how to bring it to production. I mean, I think now they also changed it in their job descriptions where it says like, okay, you either have a PhD or relevant work experience. And then I think another reason why I got the job is because I think the team was still kind of young and they were looking for people to join and in the beginning it it's always a bit easier to get in and then i think for our team specifically what we had like a mixture of people with a phd and people without a phd so i think that is why it worked because mm-hmm. then you can also really learn from the people who have a phd some things that you might miss or some some skills that you might miss and yeah that's how it worked <laughs>
0: Well, I guess this requirement comes from. So the reason it it exists is because the companies are interested in knowing if you can do research or not. And if you have a PhD, then clearly you you know how to do research, right? Because you published Mm -hmm. like at least three papers and then like you defended the thesis. You clearly know how to do research. Like if you haven't done that, then it's not clear if you can do this or not, right? Because it requires patience. It requires I don't know, some research mindset which not everyone has.
1: Yes, I think yes. But then also I think research at Amazon in this role is not exactly like research in academia, Mm -hmm. where you then, you know, work three years on one topic. And so I think maybe they also realize that, okay, people with certain industry experience, they also bring some qualities to the table. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe they found out that if we mix their teams, we have a good combination of, of the two, and we can actually leverage mm-hmm. both skill sets.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you said that research at Amazon is not the same as research in academia. So, how does research at Amazon look like? Like, what do you actually do there?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just okay. I mean, the way that I heard from my colleagues, right, how research works in academia. I mean, I only did my master's thesis, I didn't do a PhD, but I have like a rough understanding of how it works there. But yeah, let me explain how it works at Amazon, because I definitely have a better understanding there. Like I said, I mean, there's this principle at Amazon that you always do uh, research with a focus on, on the customer problem, right? So you never just do research to solve any kind of problem, but it always has to be a customer problem. And you always have to focus on the application and how to bring it into the production system afterwards.
0: So from the beginning, before you even start the research project, you already know how it will be applied, right? Or you have to know before you start?
1: Yeah, so basically, before you start, there's two things you need to look into. So, or three things. So first, what is the customer problem? Like, how do we define the problem clearly? Then second, what are the possible solutions and how are they going to solve the customer problem? So really also, we did some estimates on impact and, and all these kind of things. And then yeah how can you bring it into production what's the effort to bring it into production is it feasible to roll out to production then i think that what it kind of differentiates from this normal data science role then that you talked about is you work with cutting edge machine learning models there right you don't learn with xg you don't work with xg boost like you mentioned so you really work with state of the art research so you look into the papers you look at existing approaches and then you adapt them to your problem at hand. And this is really cool because Amazon also really promotes this kind of strong link to academia where you really rely on cutting edge research to solve these customer problems. And of course, also the models that we work with were already quite, yeah, at state of the art. And then one part that I also didn't do in any other job before was really publishing papers. So we had a goal each year, to publish papers in academic conferences, for example, ACL or EMNLP. And we also attended academic conferences, whereas in my previous role as a data scientist, I usually uh, went to those industry oriented conferences.
0: That's interesting because I know that publishing papers in these top tier conferences is already hard enough. But in addition to that, you also have to think like, how am I going to put this thing into production? So you kind of have two jobs in one, right?
1: Exactly. It's challenging. It's not easy, but um, I also have to say there's not only the research track anymore, uh, but these conferences now also often have industry tracks. So there it's not that much about the novelty of the, the approach, especially what's important is you also don't necessarily have to Publish results on open source data sets, because sometimes we didn't have the time to rerun experiments on an open source data set, but of course we couldn't release the data that we were using for our experiment. I mean, there are also teams and, and, and scientists who publish at the research track, but we also published in the industry track a lot. Mm-hmm.
0: Because for these conferences, for these industry tracks, Uh, Uh, What is interesting is the applications of the -the state-of-the-art methods, right? One thing is like, yes, you can develop this state-of-the-art algorithm and then test it on like usual benchmarks. But what about applying it to real-life problems? And this is what you do, right? And then you publish research on that. Like we had this problem and this is how we used the -the state-of-the-art to solve it.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes we also extended the state of the art thing. You know, it's not like there was no novelty at all, but it's Mm -hmm. maybe not as much novelty as it would have to be for the research track. And then also there was less overhead, let's say, in publishing in the industry track. Because usually we run experiments on internal data sets, and then running experiments on public data sets is extra work, Mm -hmm. which you don't always have the time for.
0: And yeah, when it comes to novelty, I remember like, eight years ago, when I was doing my master's at TU Berlin. And one of the criteria for the master's was novelty. And I'm like, okay, I'm a student. Like, I don't know much. And now you asked me to work on, like, novelty? Like, how is it even possible? And then what my advisor told me was that taking existing things and applying to something to a data set or category or domain Nobody has applied and seeing what the results are yeah. is already like super
1: novel. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> exactly. That's also one way to go. And that's also something that we did, right? Um, I mean, taking something from image and applying it to NLP. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm curious. So the goal was actually solving customers' problem. but yet you had another goal of papers, which was more important, like with the main KPI.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, the... The main KPIs is, is customer problems. Because that's also where you uh-huh. kind of, I mean, that's the first thing that you do, right? That's the work that you do. And then afterwards, you I publish the paper. Okay. It's not in parallel, usually.
0: Mm-hmm. So you have two KPIs, but the one, the business metric is more important, like that you yeah. solve the customer problem. And then papers are more like nice to have, right? Or it's still important to, like, if you don't publish, then you're not a researcher, right?
1: <laughs> yeah I mean, it's still important. I mean, there is internal goals for papers. um I mean, also Amazon has an interest in in people publishing, right, because it helps their reputation, it helps them attract talent yeah. but then I might also for you as a research scientist, right that it's you are intrinsically very motivated to do that, right' Cause it's a nice way to sum up your work and to showcase it and to also go into that exchange with other uh, people. But of course, I mean, the first one is always the customer problem and the business and then, and then the paper,
0: yeah. As we speak, I'm looking now at your LinkedIn profile, and I see that you worked at Amazon for three years, nine months. So almost four years. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: How many papers, how many research projects did you get a chance to work on?
1: So research projects, more than papers. We didn't always have the time to publish. I mean, research projects. I think four or five. So usually you have like one. So
0: one per year approximately, right?
1: Exactly. You have like one focus project per year. And then papers, I think it's four papers. (laughs) Yeah.
0: In your Google Scholar that I have open right now,
1: it's four. It's four, yeah.
0: It's like one paper per year too, right? So five projects for papers.
1: Yeah. I mean, the project also, it depends, right? I mean, I definitely had more than five projects, but then the question is, what is your role in the project, right? Are you the the leading scientist on that one, or are you just uh, contributing or giving feedback? But yeah, I think it was like five or six where I was the lead in like research projects, but then we also have other projects. I also had like more uh, software project. I mean, you don't only have research tasks.
0: Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a leading scientist on a project?
1: So that means you are the owner of the project, right? You are responsible for kind of defining the problem, trying out different solutions, communicating with stakeholders, you know, kind of giving the initial approaches. And then, I mean, you can, of course, work with other people and go collect feedback and ideas and input, but you are the, the main responsible person to yeah, successfully finish the project.
0: Must be not easy. Like if you come from industry without much research experience apart from writing your master thesis. And now you have all of a sudden to lead a science project. That's probably not the easiest thing to do, right?
1: Well, I didn't find it that difficult. Like, actually, (laughs) I really enjoyed it, because I really missed this research part and this part of reading about new approaches and learning and trying out new things instead of just going to the standard solution that you already know and have in the back of the mind. And I mean, of course, it's Yeah, I think you also kind of, you you grow into that. I mean, I think my first project also was about uh, this labeling, like how to to label data efficiently. And this is, of course, a bit easier than maybe later on when we looked into how to generate adversarial attacks with a T5 model. This has more technical complexity. And then, of course, what I have to say, you also have a lot of support at Amazon. This is really great. You have a lot of competent people around you And you really have this culture of collaboration. So whoever you reach out to, they will always be happy to support you. And I really enjoyed the challenge to kind of, yeah, catch up on this.
0: Mm -hmm. It also proves that you don't need to have a PhD to be a scientist,
1: Yeah. I mean, I, for me, it was not really about proving, Uh Uh, I mean, yes, of course there was this topic, okay, do I need a PhD, Mm -hmm. don't I need a PhD, but I was just happy that finally, you know, I could do the task that I enjoy.
0: Yeah, the, the reason I brought it up because there is a question from Matita. And the question is, how does having a PhD help getting some leverage over those who doesn't? Because I guess the reason she's asking, as I see from the question, like, do you really need to have a PhD? Like, does it really give you the edge when it comes to doing research at uh, industry companies like Amazon?
1: Well, I mean, it's so first of all, it definitely can be, right? It depends on the team. It depends on the hiring manager. I mean, there are teams and managers who have that as a first requirement, right? So if you want to go to one of that teams, then you definitely need it. Once you're in, I don't know. I think it depends a lot on you. It also depends on what kind of PhD you did maybe. But it's also a bit hard for me to say because I don't really know what the benefit mm-hmm. I mean what you really take out of it right because I didn't do it I mean
2: mm-hmm. yeah difficult so. <laughs> I see
1: I mean I, I think yes it can be an entry ticket and probably you learn some skills that are useful but then on the other hand you can also argue it the other way right mm-hmm. I think it really depends on where you want to go and if in that environment you really need it and if you want to do it
0: and uh, yeah, I'm looking at your Google Scholar, and there is one paper with six citations that he published in 2021, which is like, is it better to verify semi supervised learning with a human in the loop or large scale NLU models? So, yeah, it's uh, a long name. So maybe can you tell us more about this paper? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. So basically, uh, let me give you a quick introduction of the setup that we were working in. So basically, So my team was in charge of the natural language understanding models for German and French. And we would have to update these models on a regular basis. So we would retrain them every time before we release them. And well, among other things, we also added new training data in each update. And this training data would, some of the training data would come from a random sample of live traffic. And the old process was that basically this training data gets annotated by human annotators before we ingest it into training. And as you can imagine, this is uh, quite costly and time consuming, and of course not something that's desirable for a business. So we thought about, okay, how can we save some costs, speed up the process and, and so forth. The solution that we describe in the paper is basically Instead of showing the annotator just the simple request without any hints on how to annotate or anything, we run this request through the NLU model and show the annotator the output from the NLU model. So then the annotator just has to understand, okay, is the NLU model right? If yes, you know, just takes it off and sends it right into the training set. And if not, they just they only have to correct. They don't have to annotate the full utterance from scratch.
2: So it saves time.
1: It saves time, exactly, but it also reduces the annotation volume a lot. Because if you imagine, you know, Alexa was launched, I think, seven or eight years ago now, and then German was one of the first languages that came after English. So the model already has some kind of maturity, you know, it already has a certain level of accuracy. So actually, the annotator doesn't have to make that many corrections. And yeah, another thing that we found that's quite interesting, actually, with that we didn't expect was it also leads to more consistent annotation. So Because if you can imagine, you just show the utterance to the annotator, and then they just annotate as they think, they don't have like a primer or some kind of bias, which sometimes could also lead to the same utterance being annotated in a different way, which gave us inconsistencies in the training set. And through this approach, uh, since the model gives you one interpretation, then annotators get biased into one direction. Mm -hmm. You have more consistency in the training data.
0: Mm -hmm. You might have my voice somewhere in the training data. uh, Because I have uh, an Alexa speaker and we use German because my son speaks only Russian and German. He doesn't speak English. So then Ah, we thought, okay, let's practice pronouncing in German and we'll see like if Alexa understands me or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so maybe you have that in the training data too.
1: Maybe, yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, the overall, the product problem was uh, you wanted to improve the accuracy of uh, Alexa, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, the customer problem and this is, is one is accuracy, yes. But then, of course, sometimes their projects were also aimed in improving mm-hmm. our internal processes and reducing costs.
0: Okay, so in this case, it was... Uh, Mostly driven by cost reduction, but then at the end it also impacted accuracy. Because like you have a better exactly. data set. And you yeah. y- like there is already a process where you bring in more data to improve the model. And you just m- wanted to make this process cheaper, right?
1: Cheaper, faster.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you evaluate the performance of these models? Like just you by looking at well, I guess you send it to the annotators, right? They say yes, no, right? And then you, uh,
1: so usually we do, we just have test sets. We mm-hmm. have a bunch of, of different test sets. So after training, the model is just run on different test sets. And then we just look at certain kinds of metrics. I mean, sometimes, yeah, for very high performing utterances, we would also do some extra checks to make sure that they still work after retraining the model. That was actually one of the, the other projects I worked on to reduce this effort of really making sure that all the high traffic utterances still work after retraining. We worked on an approach to make the model more stable. So when you basically retrain it, you put more weight on utterances that have high traffic, such that they get mm-hmm. interpreted correctly. Mm-hmm.
0: I remember for me, the main problem was uh, with Alexa. When I asked it to play a song, like I say first, like, spiel uh, like I say, in German, right? And then the song name is in English. Ah, Okay. And I think like maybe it didn't always get the song name correctly. Because like, it's. Ah, I don't know how these models work with like when you mix two languages.
1: Yeah, it should actually work because I mean, the song name is an entity, right? And we keep those entities in English. Mm -hmm. If the song name, I mean, if it's an English song, right, then it should work maybe but it could of course also be an asr issue right that the asr model didn't properly transcribe the song, so that could lead to asr issues but sometimes yeah. also yeah if the song is not very popular it can be that it just didn't work that well
0: well songs by queen were like most of the time it played the song i asked like if it's popular like uh, a queen or something like that like popular songs less popular yeah, yeah. like you're right I guess it depends uh, on how much traffic you get for particular songs, right?
1: Exactly, yeah, because, I mean, if something goes wrong, the more often it goes wrong, the higher the probability someone else will notice. And
0: if it's like a song that uh, somebody asks to play once a year, then...
1: Yeah, you're not going to find that in, in the traffic. <laughs> it's just too yeah. much loss. <laughs> yeah,
0: I see. I know maybe it's internal data, but what's the most popular request to Alexa?
1: I don't know. And I also would not be allowed to share, I guess.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. For me, it was mostly timer. So I was using it too.
1: I mean, I, yeah, the most popular domains that I music, timer, weather, like those mm-hmm. yeah, are used very often.
0: And I also like, uh, I was checking up her. It's here, right? Cause like I can use different voices, but like it was speaking with female voice to me. I guess it's a difficult question. Like what's the gender for this AI model?
1: I would just say her probably just because (laughs) the name is already female.
0: Because it's Alexa, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: But also it's kind of similar to Alexei. So there is a funny story. So like I was talking to my colleague and uh, he had Alexa in his room. And every time he said my name, Alexa would activate
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of course.
0: (laughs) Yeah, It's close. Yeah. And recently you decided to focus on something else on, uh, I guess that's quite different from what you were doing, right? So now you're a freelancer. So maybe can you tell us more about that? Like what do you do now and how did you make this decision to change your career and start freelancing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, okay. It is different in the sense that I'm not working on like one, model anymore but of course there is still going to be quite some overlap in terms of topic Yeah, so because i mean as i said before my goal is to support companies in the adoption of ai especially generative ai with text and kind of keep them competitive in the long run uh, because that's going to be crucial to enhance your productivity and i mean there is a lot of overlap there right in how you well in the kind of technology that I'm working with and then also since I worked at Deloitte before where I was already in this technical consulting role there is some overlap there right I mean of course the working mode is very different because it's the first time that I'm not employed anymore so uh, this also means you have to take care of everything right now right you have to get new clients get new projects you have to market yourself have to promote yourself and, I mean, you also have to send out the invoices in the end. You have to take care of your taxes. So so that is of course different. I think the second part of your question was like how I made this decision, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In general, I think you can have a lot of impact if you support these smaller to medium-sized businesses in adopting AI. I think in Germany, this is especially important because we're lacking behind with adoption of AI, digitalization, and innovation. So I see that I can have a contribution there. But in general, I just also wanted to think and work in a more entrepreneurial way and having more freedom in the way how you work, what you work on, who you work with. And another thing actually that really led to this decision was that I wanted to have the possibility to also venture out in new areas. And that's in kind of, you know, doing several things in parallel. I think that's easier if you're self-employed versus if you're working full-time or even just, let's say, 80 or 75% Mm -hmm. in a corporate.
0: So you can consult on projects in different domains, in different areas, and then understand, okay, like, maybe I like healthcare more than, uh, I don't know, food tech.
1: Yeah, or maybe also just doing something completely different on the side, right? Kind of having different things that you do, not just doing one thing five days a week anymore.
0: You mean like not doing just data science and research, but also doing, you know, something else? Yeah. Like working on your own product?
1: Exactly, working on my own product and also other projects.
0: Like personal projects and professional projects?
1: Uh yeah. I mean Or both sides. Right? <laughs> yeah, both. And maybe also have a bit more overlap between the two, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean one of the things that I wanna do is support women in AI. So maybe you know about this um study from McKinsey Digital that half of the women leave leave tech industry at the midpoint of their career, which is double the rate as men do.
0: So you mean leave and then do not come back?
1: exactly so leave for good they just leave behind the industry
0: do you know why like is it because like uh, women need to give birth to kids right and then like they stay longer with kids usually than men is it the reason or the reason is something else
1: no but i think that's not the only reason i mean i think yes part of it is that because they don't feel like they have enough flexibility to kind of combine the job with the family, but then I think in the article also said that a lot of women still feel like they have to do more to be successful. They feel isolated. They don't feel recognized. They think it's hard to get promoted. And I think they just also get a bit frustrated with these things that are at least to some extent due to a lack of diversity in the industry.
0: So you want to support women? There was this research, and I interrupted you.
1: Yeah, so that is one of the other projects that I want to work on. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to look like. I'm still uh-huh. kind of working on the concept how I'm going to do that. But it's definitely mm-hmm. something I want to spend more time on. Yeah, and that is of course easier in a in a freelance role. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna share updates on LinkedIn. So if anyone is interested, you can follow me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So
0: we. Should make sure we follow you, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. And um, when I became self-employed this year,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I was very surprised how expensive is health insurance in Germany. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's less expensive than in the States, but still, like, when all these costs, like, all these um, taxes are hidden and being a full-time employee, you just receive your salary, you don't worry about, like, all these taxes, uh, health insurance, uh, like pension and all that, right? You just receive mm-hmm. like a certain amount of money on your bank account and you go spend it, right? But now you receive some money, then you need to set apart some money for paying tax, right? And then like all of a sudden it turns out you have to pay 900 euros to health insurance every month, right? And then like for me, it was uh, surprising. Like and now you have to deal with all that yourself, right?
1: Exactly, yes. And and that's also the part that I don't enjoy as much, but <laughs> yeah, in, in general, I mean, what I like is really that I have more variety of tasks now.
0: Can you tell us what you work on?
1: I mean, currently, I'm actually still just working on my positioning, on my pitch deck, on my website, on this women in AI support uh, project. I actually consciously decided to not take any projects on this year at least not bigger projects because i think this initial phase of you know setting yourself up and also frankly taking a bit of a break after (laughs) amazon i think it's quite important so so that you really feel prepared and recharged and I could imagine that once you really get into projects, you might not have the headspace anymore to think more about strategic things.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about this positioning pitch deck? Like you probably have started already.
2: Yeah.
0: And let's say I I work as a full-time employee and now I thought, okay, Mm -hmm. I want to be a freelancer, right? So what do I do now? How do I position myself? How do I come up with this pitch deck?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a combination of, okay, what are my skills? What are my strengths? Like, what value do I bring? And then you kind of look on the other side, okay, what is it that potential customers need? Like, what is my target group there? What are their problems? How can I support them? And then you try to find this intersection and you basically define the problems that they have and that they want to solve. And so you kind of put them in their shoes and Imagine, okay, what is it that they really want to tackle and how can I support them with that? And then, I mean, what I also did, I mean, now in my specific case, it's all this transformation that's going to happen with generative AI. So basically, I look into, okay, what are some studies that kind of underpin or show how Gen AI is going to transform the way we work? And then you just kind of also showcase your skills, your experience, and you define certain offerings so for example in my case it's something like a generative ai discovery workshop where this can be something in between half a day to two days and it can be just you know an introduction to generative ai or it can already go more into use case definition for that certain client so you set up or you define certain offerings um, to showcase them how you can support them yeah.
0: okay. so with skills that I have with strengths and values that I can bring, it's more or less clear. Maybe it's not like always uh, I always know that this is these are my strengths, but I more or less know what I'm good at, what I'm not good at if I work full-time, right? But when it comes to knowing what potential customers want and who are these potential customers, like in the first place, like it's more problematic because like I might have no idea. Yes, I know that I'm good at, let's say, I don't know, machine learning deployment, mm-hmm. deploying my models, right? I know that I can do this, but how with this knowledge, with the knowledge of the skills I have and values I can uh, bring to the company, how can I find the potential customers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: identify the group and like understand what they struggle with?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing could be you just find people in your network that work for companies that you might want to work for and then talk to them like what are you struggling with is there anything you struggle with in that area where you bring your skills or i mean one thing that i do now is i'm a mentor in the data action data action network mentorship program so this is a program where basically startups can book a call with mentors so they pay a subscription fee and then they can book a call with mentors and they just talk to you about some of the problems that they have So this, of course, then also helps me to understand what problems they are trying to solve. And another thing is sometimes, you know, you just say you work freelance, you introduce yourself on LinkedIn as a freelancer and on certain networks and so on. And then sometimes people already reach out to you and then you just talk to them and try to understand what they're looking for, what the problems are that they're trying to solve. And this all gives you ideas. And then, of course, it's only a starting point, right? And then once you do your first project, you can always iterate and update second project and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: So I know what my strengths and skills are. Then I should have some network and some companies where I want to work. And then reach out to people in these companies saying, Hey, like, I'm a freelancer, I can help you, like, maybe we can talk. And then I start asking what they need help with, right? And then I see, okay, like these are the problems. This is how I can help.
1: Yeah, or you just ask the people that you know, right? Maybe it's a mm-hmm. bit easier in the beginning.
0: Ah right. Instead of like going this like
1: uh code calls on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe right. they're not
1: gonna immediately share their problems with mm-hmm. you, but you can ask people that you know. Or you go to events like I think there was this there was like this event called Seamless, what which was about the payment industry. And I mean, if you just look up events in Berlin, tech events in Berlin, you can also find quite interesting, helpful events where you can meet potential clients or learn more about an industry Mm -hmm. and what they are struggling with. yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned also mentoring, and this is actually an interesting thing. So people come to you to tell you about their problems, right? And then you can take notes, what kind of problems there are, and I guess the volume is, uh, like a few people ask for like a short mentorship call and then like, you can summarize, you can see patterns there. Like startups come with, I don't know, this sort of problem, right? And then you can see, okay, like, hmm, interesting. I can help them.
1: Yeah, exactly that. And then, yeah, also reading market research, right? I mean, now if you mm-hmm. Google, I mean, of course, I'm in a lucky position that this Generative AI topic is now very much hype, right? So you find a lot of reports on how this is going to transform the way we work and how it's going to, or what new problems companies will have to solve with the adoption of that. Right. So you can really also just go and find market research from consultancies or banks. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the approach to with mentoring is pretty interesting because like I spoke with a few people, So I spoke with one guy who is uh, doing courses. And I asked him, like, how did you come up with these courses that you offer? And he said that first he did not offer any courses. What he offered was mentorship. Yeah. So he got a few students who, who he would mentor and then he would ask them what they struggle with, right? And then like from, I don't know, six, 10 students, he was able to understand that most people, at least from these 10 struggle with these problems. And then based on that, he developed a course. I guess it's sort of similar, right? So you take a few short-term sort of clients, like these people you mentor, mentees, then you speak with them, you understand what they struggle with. And then based on that, you shape your offering, right? You shape your position.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or at least you have like a first stance on it, right? And then you do Mm -hmm. the first project and then you iterate. And then, I mean, eventually this can also lead into creating a product right if you see that okay almost every client has the same problem then yeah maybe you can think about how can i create a product to provide a solution for that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah why did you decide to go with the generative AI?
1: i mean this is very close to what i did at amazon and of course like i said before it's natural language processing is always has always been the area that i'm most passionate about i really like it And I mean now the recent developments of course
0: It's mind blowing, right?
1: Yeah, made this very very easy, right, to make this Mm -hmm. decision to focus on that. And it's yeah, it's very mind blowing and interesting. And I like this intersection of, you know, human and machine, and this is exactly what language is. Yeah, what these these big large language models are. Yeah.
0: You probably cannot comment on that, but I was always wondering what happens if we plug Alexa to ChatGPT. That would be awesome, right? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, you don't don't have to say anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Yeah, So now you work on um, positioning yourself and your pitch deck, right? So what does come to the pitch deck, like what we discussed right now, but like in a short deck? Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, so what I'm doing first is building like a long deck that has a couple of slides that really has like everything in it, like basically. Some slides that show, okay, why do you have to act on this generative AI revolution? What are the facts, right? And then what can generative AI do? What are the potential? What are the risks? And then some slides on who I am, what my experience is, why I, why I'm in a good position to take on or support uh, clients in this task. And then, yeah, some slides regarding my offering, some slides. I actually also have a list of reference projects from my corporate career in there. And then also uh, your daily rate and how to get in touch. So this is a very long presentation. But then once I have this long pitch deck, you know, I can just shorten it based on, on the audience or on, on the need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I can also build the website based on, on that. It's just a different kind of display format. Yeah.
0: So I guess it's needed for an interview, right? So when I'm interviewed, I'm being interviewed for a full-time position, like there is a process, like I need to first talk, I don't know, with HR, with recruiters and hiring manager. Then there is a set of technical interviews. But for freelancers, I guess this is an interview where you present this pitch deck, right?
1: Yeah, well, I don't think you can't get a project if you don't have a pitch deck. I mean, I already had some requests and could have started working on a project even without a website, without a pitch deck.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I'm choosing to do that because I think it helps me position myself because I want to work on certain topics and I want to be standing for certain topics, right? Not just anything and everything. And it's also an interesting thing because as I said, I want to think more entrepreneurial and this is part of, of that. It's fun. It's <laughs> I like also mm-hmm. you know venturing out in a new field where I haven't the yeah, I don't have that much experience in learning something new. So yeah.
0: So even without this pitch deck, you already got some potential projects. like How is it? Because uh, people from your network already know that you are a freelancer and they are, hey, come to us before somebody else uh, took you. Right?
1: Yeah, it's basically network and. Also posts on LinkedIn, like posting, Mm -hmm. I'm a freelancer now posts with machine learning content and yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like I said before, you know, I'm in this lucky position that currently this generative AI, you know, there's a need for a lot of experts. So the demand is higher than the supply. So that's, this of course makes it easier for me.
0: So what do you post about typically on LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, I post about very different things. <laughs> I mean, I, I post about machine learning and, and how to, I mean, I post about my papers, of course. I posted about how to deliver value with machine learning. I, I will post about how to combine design thinking with machine learning to tailor to the user needs. But I also post a lot about, you know, things I learn, things that help me. I really also like personal growth topics. So basically anything that I find interesting, <laughs> not just machine learning.
0: <laughs> I'm looking at your feet right now and what uh, caught my attention is exactly not a post about machine learning. So the, there's a, a picture where you sit on the floor and there are like different... Um,
1: <laughs> Sound balls.
0: Things I don't even know. Oh, wh- what is that? <laughs> crystal like, what balls.
1: Is... It's crystal balls, yeah.
0: Yeah, what is that? <laughs>
1: it's crystal bowls so they are bowls made of quartz and you basically play them and then they make a very soothing calming sound and usually you know people would just lie down close their eyes you would play the bowls and then the sound wave have a very physical effect on their body right so they slow down their brain waves and also you can feel the sound in different areas of your body and this Helps people to go into a relaxed and calm state. And I discovered that for myself like two years ago mm-hmm. and got a rave. Yeah. I really, really love doing sound baths. So yeah, now sometimes I also give sound baths.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: One of my side projects <laughs> that I mentioned before.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now you have more flexibility to actually do that, right?
1: Well, I mean, I also did that, uh, while I was working at Amazon. I mean, sound baths, you know, it's something you do for an hour. It's not like another full-time job. Mm -hmm. And I actually also did one at Amazon, which was pretty cool. (laughs) In the office. In the office. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Do you have any of these uh, balls somewhere near you right now?
1: Uh, no, no, sorry. Uh. not here. But I can send you a YouTube video if you want to listen.
0: Okay, yeah, please do. We will include this.
1: I have a recorded video.
0: Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, let me check if we have questions. Yeah, a question from Taras. Taras asks, what role did your formal education, school and university play in your career?
1: What role it played in my career? I mean, it was definitely the foundation, right? Because Mm -hmm. I think coming from a technical background is is important if you want to work in machine learning and statistics and probability of course is closely related to the field so it was the foundation and also i think being able to read technical papers being able to read mathematical equations i mean of course you can always learn things later but the earlier you start with that the easier it is and yeah
0: and you studied machine learning during your masters right
1: yeah exactly but then of course it didn't stop there right you you uh, always yeah, of have course. to keep going
0: <laughs> like uh, yeah did you also attend uh, machine learning courses the, the machine learning course from technical university or it was some other university
1: no actually i attended the one at humboldt university
0: okay so at the technical university there is uh, he's quite famous professor müller He worked on uh, support vector machines, right? and this is what he taught mostly, because he did a lot of research in this area, so in many of his classes, he was teaching support vector machines and all these things, and then, yeah, I learned that, but then when I graduated, it turned out that um, SVMs aren't that common, (laughs) (laughs) to my surprise, and then, like, okay, now I need to learn about, like, other methods that are more common, like neural networks. Yeah. And then like, of course, education didn't stop there.
1: So I attended the course by Professor Dr. lessmann uh, He works at the Institute of Informatics at Humboldt University. And what was really nice, he gave us like a very good overview of all the different me- methods and already included neural networks there. And I think one of his courses uh, that he did during COVID is now also on YouTube. Mm-hmm. That is also a good starting point if you want to get started with NLP, for example. He has a couple of lectures on NLP which are pretty nice, yeah, for a beginner.
2: (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, maybe last question. So before we finish, is there any book or other resource that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: Yes, I mean, so books, there are actually two. The one that I recently read is uh, Entrepreneurial Revolution by Daniel Priestley. I really enjoyed that one because it's a very practical step-by-step guide, what you need to do to become an entrepreneur and how to approach getting customers, defining your offerings and and all this. Uh, So I really like that one. And the other one that I recommend um, is Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck, something that I read, I think, two years ago. And it really, yeah, it changed my view on, you know, basically now I'm convinced that you can learn anything and everything Okay. (laughs) if you are dedicated enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay,
1: And I find that very powerful. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Do they only convince you that you can learn everything or do they also show how in this mindset book?
1: Yeah, it's more how to approach it. Uh-huh. Yeah, and why it's important to have this mindset first. And then I think it's also easier to put into practice. And I mean, another thing that I can recommend, which is a bit more technical, there's this one podcast that I recently listened to. Unfortunately, it's only in German, but If you speak German, it's an interesting explanation of how large language models work, and you also don't need to have a lot of prior knowledge. It's called ChatGPT und LLM einfach erklärt wie lernt eine KI spricht. So basically, how does an artificial intelligence learn how to speak?
0: I will use this as practice tomorrow before my German (laughs) lesson.
1: Yeah. Let's see
0: how much I will understand.
1: I mean, actually it's a lot of German and English because the guest who is being interviewed, he is German, but he moved to the US many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. So it seems like for him, speaking English is also more, his, it's also easier for him. <laughs>
0: but also if you do, if you work in English speaking environment, then many terms, True. like machine learning terms, they usually come up in in English.
1: True. Yeah. I also find it easier to speak in, in English.
0: Like when you talk about like this, this exactly. Yeah. Like for me, it would be difficult to speak about machine learning in Russian.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, also, when I speak about it in German, I have this tendency to use a lot of English words as well.
0: <laughs> exactly. Okay, thanks a lot for joining us today, for sharing your experience and telling us about things you plan to work on and things you worked on. That was really great. Thanks. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today, too.
1: Thank you. Yeah. If you have any further questions, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just reach out there.
0: Yeah. We need to follow you because we want to know what you will work on. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, bye everyone. Bye. Elena.
2: Thank you. Bye.
0: See you.